Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to episode 130. And whether it is your first time joining us or your 130th time, uh, welcome to another great conversation with a fellow Asian American. Uh, today, it is uh, October 12th, and it is the day that the book, uh, Dear White Woman, launches uh, across the country, across the world. It is co-written by two dear friends of mine, uh, both of them, both of whom you will hear this week here on Dear Asian Americans. Today, we get to uh, hear from my friend Sarah Blanchard and later in the week from Mishasa uh, Suzuki Graham, uh, who are college friends. They met at Harvard and uh, they're both Japanese American and mixed race white and decided uh, over after their uh, careers uh, in, in law and in coaching and other things uh, to create a platform uh, to speak about their journeys and to also uh, talk about race and all the things that uh, we collectively uh, care deeply about. And so uh, I've been fortunate to be a guest on their show, so I encourage you to check out their um, show called Dear White Woman, and also check out the book that comes out today, uh, that came out today, rather. Uh, I will put the links in the show notes. Without further ado, here now is my conversation with Sarah Blanchard. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans. And today, a super cool episode. I like podcasts that sound like my podcast. And so today, we get one half. And you can hear the other one as well on Dear Asian Americans. We got two hosts of Dear White Woman. Today, we have Sarah Blanchard. And then we'll hear from Ishasha on a separate episode. We're going to learn about how these two biracial Asian American women met together in college, pursued their own professional careers, and, and now uh, at this part of their lives decided to use their voice, their privilege, their perspective of being adults in America, being mothers, being all these things that uh, we often think about, that we evolve and grow into, to share a message with an audience uh, that perhaps doesn't talk about the things that uh, we talk about here on this show often or often enough. So really excited to share this conversation with my dear friend, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Jerry. So good to be here. You got a lot of stuff going on. Professionally, you are a coach. Uh, you had a career before this part of your life. Uh, you produced a podcast with Ms. Shasha got a book coming out. Folks should be listening to this on or about the day the book drops. Both the podcast and the book are called Dear White Woman, which when I first heard about it, I was like, why? Why? What, what does this have to do with me? They look white, but they sort of look Asian. But anyway, tell us about you and Dear White Woman before we get to the rest of your, your story. Sure. About me, um, I'm biracial. My dad was a six foot four blonde hair, blue eyed white guy which probably leads to the looking a little bit not Asian, but then my mom is a Japanese immigrant. Um, and so I grew up in this house on the East Coast of the US as the oldest of three kids. Um, and we can go into all of that stuff about my Asian childhood in a little bit. But I, I just am super excited to be doing this work because I think we're asked, why dear white women? You know, and it's, yeah, I think your show is more of a uh, like a love letter to people and celebrating the Asian population, right? With dear Asian Americans. For us, dear white women is like, we're calling to this target audience. We want white women to be involved in the conversation because, you know, again, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, but the second half of my adult life, I'm married to a white Canadian guy. I have two white presenting daughters and I live in white circles. I live in Colorado right now. And I have been privy to a lot of conversations that are happening and are not happening in those circles. And we really wanted to 
bring some more conversations to the table that could push them to use their spheres of influence to improve the lives of all of our kids, basically. And I think what I love about the work that you and Mishasha do are the the proper and, and contextually relevant sort of use of privilege to talk to people that maybe I don't get to talk to. Actually, I take that back. I can talk to them all I want. They may not listen to me. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I think that's sort of the the, the lesson and sort of the cool thing that you guys have done is that not just even privilege based on your identity, but the spaces that you are able to occupy and the, I guess, the the education-based privilege that you have, having gone to the schools that you've gone to, to communicate it with the, hey, I have walked in the same shoes or perhaps in similar shoes along similar paths because that's sort of the difficult thing talking about race and equity and justice and diversity and all the things that I know that all of the people who listen to this show care about deeply is how do we get to people to build empathy and to build relatability with people who have no idea what it means to be Asian American in this country, whether you came here through adoption or you, you came here on your own, your parents came here on your own, you were born here, you know, so I think that is really, really fascinating. Let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us about Sarah. You said your mother was a Japanese American immigrant. Tell us a little bit about that story. How did you see yourself growing up? How important was the, you know, the Japanese American identity to you growing up? Was it? And how does that translate to the work that you do now? Yeah, you know, so I asked my mom, I was like, do you identify as Japanese American? She's like, no, I'm Japanese. And then she's like, oh, wait, but now that I have citizenship, should I be thinking about like it based on my national, like my nationality? I don't know how this whole thing works. But she, you know, came over after she had already met and married my dad. And so growing up in under her roof, I lived a Japanese life, right? Like my mom was the one who cooked these meals. We grew up with all of these Japanese traditions. I have photos of myself in the kimono for girls day every year, you know, screaming when I was a kid, cause it takes so long to put on the kimono and pose in front of the dolls. And it's a thing that luckily, you know, we've passed on to our kids, even though they're a quarter Japanese, we do that now with them and they love it. They think it's pretty and fancy. Whereas I was tortured as a child. Um, but I think between, you know, being told I, Japanese was my first language. I went to Japanese Saturday school um, and I spent a lot of summers living with my grandparents in Japan, the food, tea ceremony lessons, you know, calligraphy lessons. I mean, I grew up feeling very in touch with my Japanese side, my Asian identity. And then you go to regular public school and I'm like, but I'm also one of these kids. I just can't do soccer on Saturdays that everybody else gets to do because I'm stuck having a bus to Flushing in New York to go to, to Japanese Saturday school. I couldn't do sleepovers on Friday night. So there's definitely my share of tantrums on the floor when my mom of the kitchen, when my mom was like, do your Japanese school homework. And I'm like, I don't want to. And now I'm really grateful that I'm bilingual. Right. And so I think having melded both those worlds where I also had times where I was under sort of stricter rules and expectations playing piano, all these stereotypical things, right. Um, that we see portrayed in media about what an Asian parent is like. I did all of those checked all those boxes as well. And my dad, I would be like, why can't I go X, Y, Z, you know, go to the place to go hang out with my friends until whatever time they're all hanging out. And he's like, well, your mother said no. And I would have this moment of uprising. And my father was really clear that, look, your mother didn't grow up here. 
and she has what is, you know, in her cultural norms, what is expected. And I expect you to honor that. There is more than one way to live. And that was the one huge lesson I took from the time sort of growing up in the US, but also spending summers in Japan and having my dad very clearly say, I expect you to respect your mother, regardless of her rules, like being different than those rules of your other sort of white friends. But did it, was it as binary? I mean, you know, because I, I, I think when to, to completely overgeneralize, which isn't fair, but we'll, we'll give it a shot, right? Like Asian and Asian American parents in general or seem to be more restrictive, more what I say goes. And, and even, you know, I, I, grew, I grew up in a relatively very Korean part of America and in Fullerton out here. And it was just always sort of like, okay, like the white kids have more loose parents, like just guidelines wise, and they just seem to be more open-minded. Whereas say what you will about the stereotypes of tiger parents and whatever else you want to call them. That to me seems for, for me, it was one experience looking out at another saying, Oh, I wonder what that's like. And as a kid, right. You just want freedom and you just want whatever you want. You're like, that sounds nice. But for you, it must've been different because you had, I don't even want to call them opposing forces, but different perspectives within their own household. Did that cause you to want to be one or the other be perceived as one or the other was there resentment building of sort of why can't i be one or the other and i guess at what point did you even sort of process that you're both it's interesting i don't think i ever had resentment in that sense i felt like i always was forced to then lead an independent life like i was always able to criticize japan from outside because i was a japanese person and understood that and I could also criticize America because I was, I'd was i spent enough time in Japan and understood that there was another culture that I could pick and choose the best of both worlds. Um, so I never actually felt like I wanted to be wholly one or the other from the time I was young. I think if you ever talk to any of my friends from my childhood, they will tell you how horrifically independent my fashion sense was. Like I would wear my six foot forefathers like old t-shirts. I mean, they were like, you are so weird and your own self and confident in yourself that I'm really lucky to have had that sort of mindset growing up. Um, but I also had groups of, you know, my daughter told me today, she doesn't like the word quirky, but I would have to say like quirky friends where we, you know, formed small groups of friendships because we were obsessed with a, a movie, a teen movie that we had heartthrobs in, or then I had, and those were the white friends. And then I had groups of Asian friends. And even to this day, we're still in touch, but we were all a group of misfit Asians. We didn't fit into the stereotype of, I mean, I hate talking about the stereotypes, but even within it, right? Like the people who align with their churches and, and, and really just, you know, hung with their group there, or like, we really just were a group of misfit Asians hanging out. And so I felt like I always had groups of people to fit into because even in that misfit Asian group, it was like Chinese, Korean, Japanese, and then more recent immigrant Japanese versus Japanese people who were born there. Like it was just a group, a bunch of different groups of people that I was able to float between that I felt very comfortable and accepted being myself. Um, and so that was really fortunate, I have to say. What kind of things did you want to be? You ended up at Harvard. You ended up majoring in Asian American studies. What did you want to do? And, you know, I, I guess... There's another sort of, I don't want to call it a stereotype, but just sort of Asian American kid goes to Harvard, right? But ends up taking Asian American studies as her major. That's almost an, an odd oxymoron in a, in a way, right? Like, cause there's, that's, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like the thing that a typical Asian American parent would want you to do. Oh, she sure. didn't. Oh, sure. No, sure. No. Go to Harvard. But then why, why the hell are you studying that? 
oh, it was go to Harvard and yet you still need to become a pharmacist. It's not good enough. You need to become a pharmacist and have a skill that nobody can take away from you. Like there was definitely a sense of like, keep driving, keep pushing. You are never going to be fully okay. And yet now that I'm an adult, I have to say my mom has totally flipped and been like, no, you're great. Like you're fine. So I don't know when that transition happened in her parenting, but at that time when I got into Harvard and did that, that sort of line of study, it was very much like, what on earth are you doing? Like, um, I really have always been interested in psychology. I actually really wanted to study psychology as an undergrad, but the guy sitting behind the table at the psychology major table looked weird. And I fully was uncomfortable and skipped the table and went to the East Asian studies. And that's why I majored in East Asian studies. Like, I really don't know what else to say other than also I had this dream that one day after graduation, I would live in Japan and really understand my mother's culture. I really wanted to understand her better and like live there. And I figured that was one of the easiest ways to get experience enough to be able to take me there. I didn't know what I would do, but that's what I wanted to do. That is, I think that's fascinating. I mean, you know, it, it, on one hand, you sort of check the box of, okay, you got to the school that they are, are, are proud of you for going to, or they can brag to their friends, whatever, right? Like check the box. But I, I guess professionally then, we know what you do now, obviously, but like what was was there a conflict there? Like, what did you want to do? And I don't want to, you know, poo-poo on people who take East Asian studies. I think it's a critically important thing to study. And now there are not enough, but a growing number of Asian American studies departments and sort of more of the humanities of understanding who we are. But what, what did you, and I hate to sound like such a capitalist, but like, what did you want to do? And I hate that question. What do you do? So I'm glad you're not asking it in that way. But like, um, I, I actually knew that in order to live in Japan, I would need to make money because I went to college and had student loans that I needed to pay off. So my ideal would have been like, let me go teach English in Japan and live this immersed life. But that was never going to be the case because I needed to get a job that paid. And I was really lucky that I, in the East Asian Studies Department, found out that Goldman Sachs was coming through. Like there was a finance, like, you know, people who were showing up to interview people to work in their Tokyo offices. And so I was able to get an internship and then got a job guaranteed sort of for senior years. So it was really, I knew I could then work in the Tokyo office, live in my mom's culture while also mm. still paying back student loans. And I, it felt like sweet, I won, like I got my goal. So even though it wasn't what I wanted to do in my heart, it was one of those things that at least got me to parts of the goal and journey that I wanted to get to. But you did that for more than five years, which I think is, again, sort of necessarily necessary. And it, yeah, I know what that sounds like, but you know, sort of you, you did what you had to do, right? When did you want to step away from that? And why did you want to step away from that? Yeah, that was more of a dramatic, I think, you know, in the back of my head, someone had asked when I was working there and it was one of my colleagues, they're like, how often do you ask yourself if you still want to do this? And they were like a senior boss to me. And I was like, I don't know what the appropriate answer to this question is, but they said, I ask myself that all the time. And that felt like a relief to me because I think in the back of my head, I was like, well, what is the end game here? Like, when do you get really stuck in the golden handcuffs that you wind up doing this forever, even if you don't totally love it? And for me, what wound up happening was I got a great, uh, I don't know if you promotion, like a move where I got to move to the Hong Kong office where they wanted me to start up this desk. And within, unfortunately, within like a month of landing there, um, I called home and I heard all these beeps and buzzes in the background of my dad's phone line. And I'm like, where are you? He's like in the hospital. 
I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And at that point, like I'm 26, my like world is shattering. And my dad had always been one of the biggest supporters. He was the one who was like, go do what you need to do. You always have a home. Like he was like the foundation from which I could jump and spread my wings and go because I always felt safe that somebody was going to be there to catch me. Right. And so for him to be going through this was this absolute major shift in my worldview. And within a month he had actually passed away I was able to get back. They were super generous. The company was excellent. Like I can't say enough good things about how they took care of me, allowed me to help my family. So I flew back to New York and, and, you know, helped him transition out of this life. And he always used to sign his emails to me, keep the balance. Cause he knew, you know, in your twenties at in financial firms, you're working 12 to 15, 16 hours a day. And then you're partying at night and then you're going, getting up and doing it again. And he was just like, keep the balance, keep the balance. And I realized that if my dad could die so suddenly at age 59, we don't live forever. And I was like, is this what I want to do forever? The answer was no, right? I, I needed to do some other stuff because I, I was just, I mean, I was devastated. And so I wound up leaving the firm and my mom one day was like, you know, a few months later, like, come with me on this yoga retreat, which I know sounds like a total non sequitur to this story, except a month earlier, a friend of mine had come into this coffee shop that I was passing time working at and was like, I really want to do this project on happiness. And I was like, there was someone like it twigged, someone in my undergrad years taught happiness. I took a class, but I, I don't remember his name. I really wish I remembered his name so I could like look him up and, and learn more and help you with this project. Mom goes, come with me to this yoga retreat. We walk in late to this room and it's like a huge circle of people. And I sit down and I look up and this guy, Professor Tal Ben-Shahar is sitting across the room. And I'm like, are we serious right now? Like, this is what happened? So we wound up reconnecting. He told me at that retreat all about positive psychology and the work that he was doing and that this, there was this field called life coaching. And, and at that time, whether you believe in this stuff or not, I was um, hooked up to this aura machine. And when he was telling me about it, all of these possibilities apparently were being read in my aura about this world of life coaching. And I was like, I always wanted to do psych. I love helping people thrive. I'm going through a dark time. Like I want to understand the science of happiness. And so that was it. That like, sealed my fate into what I wanted to do next, which is, you know, get trained up in life coaching, have a practice. I eventually went back to Harvard to be a teaching fellow to help him teach the last class of positive psych. Loved it. And it's uh, all the science-based practices are the things that I've used for decades and have raised my kids in that culture too. So it's like a, that interaction and that like random happenstance really has sort of formed a foundation of the life I've led ever since. That's beautiful. Where you ended up, I think, speaks or I guess uh, is is very relevant to the work that you do now. Um, I, I want to take a quick sidestep and uh, talk parent to parent. I don't know if all of our listeners are parents. Actually, probably not all of our listeners are parents. But we've heard a little bit about how your mother and your father raised you, perhaps with, with differing opinions. But you you ended up, you know, professionally and academically in in, in decent places. You you stepped away from that and you know, sort of went 
where a Harvard banker is not supposed to go, right. uh, according to the rule book. How has that changed the way you parent your two kids today? Great question. And one that I thought I had figured out where I was like, because I grappled with the notion of after you leave that path that's been set out for you, where success is either in your title or your money. I really had to grapple with like, okay, I'm in the field of happiness. What does success now mean to me? Is it, you know, it used to be the date, like how many emails did I get through? How many people have I talked to? And you know, whatever. And when I then transitioned into like making a difference, right? Cause I always felt like I wanted to help people or, or leave the world a little bit better than it was when I showed up. It turns out I was putting that pressure on my kids. Cause my, one of my kiddos, when she was like seven or something like that said, mom, I'm not going to save the world. <laughs> like, I don't know what you want me to do. And I was like, oh my gosh. Like, obviously I was putting pressure in a different way. Like that different than I thought my mom put on me, but pressure nonetheless to make a difference. And it led me to really say, okay, like, what does it mean for me to want happiness for my children? Right. There is some level of, I want you to be able to earn enough money to support yourself and have money, not be a stressful situation, which means work ethic, which means healthy mental and physical living. But it's really led me to lean into those things because I think most careers, like skills are things that you can eventually figure out, right? Like on the job training. But it really is more about like, trust your gut kids, stand up for what you think is not just, you know, speak up, use your voice. It's those sorts of people skills that I think I have encouraged them to develop critical thinking, that sort of stuff that I really want them to be differentiated from what a robot will be able to do when they get older. Yeah, I, I, I love that answer. You know, um, I, I struggle with it too. I did the corporate thing, you know, I went to business school, did what you're supposed to do. If you listen to this show, you know a little bit of my story. I walked away from it all um, precisely about two years ago. My kids are much younger than yours. And just even thinking about like, okay, like what authority do I have to tell them to either go down the prescribed path and who knows, right? Like every kid is different or to, in a sort of an ironic twist, like telling them that they can do whatever they want is actually me telling them to do something, right? And and be open-minded, do whatever you want. What if they want to go get a PhD and just be a nerd? Like that's okay too. And, and how to balance all that not just from a professional perspective, but where I want to go next is sort of this realization that the world, at least America, is not a meritocracy. We get treated differently purely based on, I was going to say the way we look, but because of racism, anchored on sort of people's perception of us, limiting opportunities, not having the same path or same privilege that other people have, purely based on, on luck, whether you believe in a higher power or not. And and you and I and Mishasha and other people that, you know, we are friends with and that we're sort of on this unofficial team of sort of how do we change the narrative? Because we're still trying to figure it out as adults. But what's more important than that is how do we then train each other or to coach each other so that our little people don't have this same stupid conversation that we shouldn't be having in the first place, that we should just pursue happiness or opportunity, economic or otherwise. It's almost a shame that we have to sit here and talk about how to thrive in your identity almost. How did that change for you? Because you, you went from life coach and, you know, was that around the time you became a mother that changed? 
some of the change was, you know, I wound up staying at home and raising the kids for a little while. I, I sort of mentioned that to you earlier. I had the life coaching practice, was doing all the stuff. And it turns out one of my kids just needed consistency. And I literally, like when she was little, I, like I, I could not leave her. She just had stuff going on in her little body that she couldn't communicate with us. Right. So I wound up making the choice because my, my, my partner, my husband travels a lot and we just needed to provide some consistency. And so that was probably the hardest decision in terms of stepping away from a career or changing and pivoting, choosing to be the primary caregiver for my kids and not prioritizing a career outside of the home was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. But then when the youngest one was ready to go to kindergarten and I had some structure back to my day, that was when other ideas started percolating about what I wanted to really be focused on. And, you know, what you said earlier really reminded me about what we want for our kids. You know, part of the science of happiness shows that happiness is a precursor to success. So leaning in to encouraging our kids to be happy, not like happy mindlessly playing on video games, but happy because, for example, the research shows that relationships are the number one predictor of our long-term health and happiness, right? So teaching kids how to look adults in the eye, how to shake hands, how to maintain friendships, that sort of stuff is actually going to set them up for success, however we all choose to define it in the longer run anyway. So those are really worthwhile skills to be focusing on as opposed to like, come on, kids, let's learn how to code today, unless that makes them happy, right? Right. Um, so I think I've had quite a number of experiences where I just have been like reinventing myself over and over. But at the end of the day, I think this idea of how coaching and human wellness and introspection, right? Because a lot of the life coaching work and this positive psych stuff is about taking different actions, have in, introspecting and, and figuring out like, oh, how am I approaching X, Y, Z? How am I approaching the dinner table conversation with my family? What can I do to change it, right? Those sort of same skills apply to this idea of identity that you were talking about. The same kind of conversations about who am I relative to that other person? So I just feel like that that pivot was the most natural and is like my lane to bring into this conversation around social and racial justice. You were friends with Mishasha, your co-host and co-author and a lot of stuff since college. Yeah, long time ago. When did it make sense for you all to venture down this path of creating a conversation, podcast book and other things? Not, I mean, I guess primarily just about talking about the things that are important to all of us, but uh, specifically targeted at a, a part of your identity. Where, where did that stem from? You know, and you'll hear it from her in her episode in her own words about the why it felt so urgent. But we'd always in the back of our heads been like, one day we'll do a project together. You know, we've never lived in the same city except for one year after college. And it, that was like 25 years ago that we met. So um, we had each our own career paths and our own like child rearing trajectories as well. And it was probably about three years ago, three or more years ago, where our conversations had already shifted, right? Because her kids are seen by the world as black, black boys, and mine are seen as white girls. And we had talked about the difference between boys and girls and the fear I have for girls. But then when race got layered into it, we were really deep in our personal conversations and we looked at each other and I was already doing projects here in Denver in the field of just raising awareness and having conversations. We both just sort of said, is it that time? Can we create time in our lives where she had, we had both sort of taken space to prioritize being like that primary caregiver for our kids 
in terms of creating the sense of time affluence, right? Like we, that is our biggest thing. We're not here to, I don't know, micromanage them in in so many ways, but just create a sense of a little bit more space and stability in their lives. And we just had created that in our lives in order to do that. And so we're like, well, we're both in this space right now. What if we did, and we came up with like several other ideas that seemed sort of more head led, right? Like mindful, like that might be a good intellectual thing for us to do. But then we both looked at each other and we're like, is this actually something where we should just lean into what we do naturally, which is talk, right? We've been long distance friends for so long. Let's just lean into it. And hence the podcast was the first thing. And then we both like writing and hence the book. Dear White Woman is directed at White Woman. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the show. Our tagline is that our show is here to help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. And right now, I think we approach it in three different ways, right? One is let's bring to you stories that you might not have ever heard from other people who look different than you. So we've been really centering voices of people of color on our show and bringing those to our audience. Um, some other episodes are between the two of us, Misasha and myself, where we spend time on the second part, which is learning, right? The education. Let's let's dive into how voter registration might work, or let's look at you know the history of whatever we're talking about. And so we spend some time educating. And then this summer we did a whole series of like action. What are things you can do based on all these things that we've learned? And we really believe that, I mean, lasting change has to come from many directions, right? But there's fundamentally the bottom-up approach where each one of us does a little bit of something different in our lives. But then there's also the big structural changes that need to take place. And there are a lot of resources to go to for the top-down structural change that we can all participate in. We really focus on what are the bottom-up, what are the little things that each one of us can do differently in our lives to make a difference, whether it's, I don't know, telling our kids not to use the N-word and telling them explicitly why and, and why not. Because by third grade, my kid had heard it at school, right? Like it's happening. Or, you know, having, taking a look at our social circles and figuring out who are our friends that don't look like us that we might be able to ask different questions of or invite into our circles. Like that sort of practical stuff is what we're, we talk about on the show. Share with the audience that, you know, uh, perspective on timing. When, when did you guys actually get the show launched? How has the events of the world in the last 18 months changed your outlook, the things that you wanted to talk about and what you want the legacy of the show to be? Well, we do like to say that we started in April 2019, a long time in relative terms before the state of the world changed in 2020. And we put out new episodes every week and have done so. So I think we're on like, I don't know, episode over 130 at this stage. Um, And after George Floyd's murder, which was also the same weekend that Amy Cooper did her thing, Mm -hmm. we saw a lot of attention, like a huge spike in listenership. I'm sure you understand, right? Like you probably felt that same sort of surge. And we both expected and did see a little bit of leveling off as the summer progressed, which means to us, but, but it didn't go back down. Like there are enough white people ready to engage in the conversation. And, and we don't know, we didn't do like a, you know, with podcasting, you don't a hundred percent know exactly who your audience is, but based on our Instagram followers, based on some polls that we've unofficially done, there's a very mixed audience. There's 
white men, there's white women, there's lots of people of color also listening, but we do know that there has been more sustained interest in these conversations uh, since the murder of George Floyd. Um, and I think, I don't know if you noticed this, but I feel like there's this divide that is creeping up where so many more white people are feeling like they can't say anything because of the cancel culture and the fear of, you know, making a mistake and that whole idea of perfectionism being tied into white supremacy. I don't know if you've talked about this, but you know, this pressure we put on ourselves to be perfect, to fit this mold. And like, if we mess up, then we're going to totally be a failure. It's so binary. And yet it's keeping a lot of people from actually participating in the conversation. And I'm seeing this groundswelling of this new, I don't know if it's the new approach, but a more heart-led approach to these conversations where it's like, let's really think and, and listen and be humble and, and learn constantly from one another. And let's not engage in cancel culture. And I'm really hoping that the people who resonate with that speak up more and more loudly, because I think the white people who want to do this work are being currently scared because the loudest ones are the cancel culture people. And we need to say like, it's okay to engage and start making different, you know, steps in this direction. Um, and I'm curious for you to ask you this, but some white people have said like, but how do I start? How, if I have an Asian friend and I'm worried about how this anti-Asian hate has affected them, like, how do I say something without offending them? How do I know it's okay for me to ask? And do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you ask. I think I talked about this on your show. Self double plug, Jerry guest on 115 of Dear White Woman. <laughs> Love it. Yes. Right, right in the middle of a very intense time for all of us during APAM of this year. You know, I, I think there's a big key difference between speaking for people and speaking up for people. And in, in America, it correlates to generally white folks, but it's anybody with you know, financial, academic, whatever else privilege is that a lot of folks have been conditioned from their position of privilege to just speak and end up, and they actually end up speaking for people, right? Like you have to learn the, the very, I guess, nuanced distinction between speaking for somebody and speaking up for somebody and what that difference is. Using your privilege as, as you all are to make space for these difficult conversations that may or may not happen otherwise. And I think I'm afraid to say the wrong thing fine, that's a legitimate fear or concern or a thought. But then what would you like other people to treat you, right? Because I think what we all saw, whether it was with Black friends or last year or even before that and us, is that we see these friends who are staying silent and trying to be extremely gracious and giving folks the benefit of the doubt. Uh, this is new. This is all brand new. And so people need time to process. People need time to learn and to just observe. But after that, right, after this period of I will give you the benefit of the doubt, your silence becomes really, really concerning, right? Because it's not like you're completely radio silent. You're, you know, you, you see people and friends and colleagues posting about other stuff, sharing about other stuff. And you're like, wait a minute, in, in my community, and if you care about me, this is very, very urgent. This is life or death, literally, for many of us. and. I just wish you would say, I have no idea what you want me to say, what I should say, or if I should say anything at all. I just need you to know that I am here, that I see what's happening. I just don't know what it means to be an Asian person in America, a black person in America, a trans person, anything else other than me. Therefore, 
what do you want me to do? Right. And so I've had some of these conversations with friends that are just like, okay, cool. Thank you. I know. And you know, I don't want to demonize anybody who hasn't said anything, right? Because who, who the hell am I to judge? And I haven't been vocal about every single social issue out there in the world either. And, and I think just be brutally honest and being humble and being vulnerable and saying, I have no idea what to do. Right. So let's also bake into the fact that for those of us who've been privileged enough to go to the schools that you went to, that I went to, and have worked in these places, we are the Asians that they know, right? The smart ones, the ones that make good money, the ones that live in the right neighborhoods, right? The ones that don't have an accent, right? The ones that, oh, I barely notice you're Asian. All these stupid microaggressions and these assumptions that we let them think and verbalize and never check them for decades, literally, right? So I'm not excusing any of that behavior, but I think that there is a little bit of grace that needs to be extended to the fact that we've actually never let them know that this was a problem. And so to go from like, hey, I barely recognize your agent to like, now I have to like go and defend you. Like it's it's a big jump, right? And, and I think that's at least for us, at least for East Asians who, you know, define the model minority myth, unfortunately, or sort of perpetuate it ongoingly by participating in higher education in you know, capitalism, what have you, it's on us. And this is why I'm so excited that you and, and Mishasha and other people are doing that, right? Because if not us, then sort of, you can always make an excuse that you can earn your way, you can study your way into a different level of no racism in this world. And so, you know, th that's, I think, where sort of the, the challenge is for, for a lot of difficult conversations. I, I got a number of texts and I think I, I must have shared this story on, on the show. When Atlanta happened, I got a bunch of text messages from friends. Um, mostly they were from black dudes. They said, look, I have no idea what you're going through right now. Zero. Absolutely zero. I don't know what I want. I, I don't know what I need to do. Tell me what you want me to do. You want me to go write a check? You want me to go march? You want me to go? I don't know what it is. I just need you to know that I'm here. And I will do what you ask me to do because it is not my community. It's the same damn text I sent to them last June. Mm -hmm. That builds empathy. But in a world where largely, again, white folks in this country that are even more so educated and privileged don't have those moments where they're being attacked and murdered and made to feel like fearful for their lives, it is a little bit harder to have that empathetic conversation of, I don't know exactly how you feel, but I have an idea of what it means to be excluded. And so that's where I think with the work that you guys are doing is really, really important because you are of the community, right? You belong in the same circles, the same, you know, particularly the mom groups and the parent groups and the, the workplace, the academic alumni associations and these conversations that happen. And then what I love about the work that you guys do, you know, in addition to all the other reasons is sort of this extremely nuanced balance that you guys do of holding both identities at once. Because when you hear you're a white woman, and then you two show up, you're like, wait a minute, right? Like <laughs> We get that all the time. People are like, I don't know what to expect. Are you going to be telling white women they're okay? Are you two black women talking angrily at white? Like, they have no idea what to expect when we show but, up with that But then title. it's also sort of like, well, you're Asian. So like, what right do you have? Or like, what is, like, are you non-white people telling white people what to do, right? Like, so- it, it's got to be, and, and I've gotten to know you guys <laughs> decently the last few months, and I don't expect you guys to do anything 
that doesn't necessarily push the envelope in the way that you guys do. But what what have you learned and and what can folks, uh, you know, you've had 130 plus episodes. That's a lot of content to go through. Like, how did you, what have you learned and, and how did you decide on what to distill into the book that comes out by the time you should listen to this? And, and sort of what, what is the ongoing conversation under under the conversation of Dear White Woman? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I learned personally, which was hard because I think for a while, and I think you and I, you you led me to this conversation of I used to call myself half white, half Japanese. And and it was like, well, what if we stopped belonging half and half in these communities, but fully embraced our participation in both, right? I am biracial, I'm Japanese and white. And I think that Atlanta shooting actually that you referred to is exactly the moment that both my, you know, young childhood being raised Japanese in my Japanese mom's home versus being married to a white man living in like Colorado and Arizona and living largely white, like that Atlanta moment when a white male friend of ours called and was like, look, I didn't think I'd have to call you, but how are you? It like crashed together in this, like, wow, I'm finally being seen for being Asian. Because I think for a while there was a part of me that was like, am I too white? to be having these conversations? Like, am I allowed to be? Am I Asian enough? Am I, where do I belong? And then when I was able to integrate both of them, it gave me a sense of rooting and grounding that I felt like I had been missing. So personally, this journey of being involved in the conversation for years and, you know, asking myself these questions was partly answered through the work that we do and the commitment we have to, to, continuing to push the needle, but it let me relate to a lot of the struggle that some white people might have of like, who am I to be and how do I navigate these conversations? Um, in terms of the book, I mean, my gosh, with so many episodes, it was like, how do we, how do we approach this? And we brought it into more of a structure. We really wanted busy white people to be able to pick up the book and put it down and like, not have to reread the entire chapter. We really wanted it to be practical. And so we started actually more with a structure of if we did listen, learn, and act in every chapter. And every chapter is either in the section on being white in America, being black in America, or being a not black person of color in America. What are the main issues if we're looking at like anti-racism 101, right? People who are really new to the conversation, but but haven't through no fault of their own, perhaps because of the way our society is structured, ever had to think about this, what are the things that we think are most common? And so, I mean, the first two chapters are, excuse me, I don't have white privilege, right? Like we really break it down into how do we think about some of these issues that are keeping people from engaging in the conversation or the common tropes that we hear? And how do we help break that down so people can feel empowered? Like tomorrow, after reading this page, tomorrow they can then make that change in their day-to-day life. And so that's how we really, we really structured it. We asked a bunch of our core sort of super fans and listeners and supporters, does this make sense? Are these some of the issues that you would think about? And we ran with it. What lessons can our audience, predominantly Asian American, data says we skew a little younger, skew a little female, but we have still privilege. I mean, I know that this year particularly, um, as, as we saw so many attacks on people who look like me and you, um, it's it's really, really hard to see that. But what, what sort of lessons can we learn sort of looking at it from the opposite way of white folks might have a little bit of hesitancy to jump into conversations about race, but we collectively as a community are, are getting loud now. But uh, at the times we have not been so loud when it comes to standing up for other people, whether it be race-based or gender identity. What, what are some lessons? I, I guess the short answer is why should somebody 
who doesn't identify as a white woman tune into your show to learn and or to read this book called Dear White Woman? Yeah, you know, like I said, it was our target audience because we feel like white women have a large role to play in their circles. But the reality is every single one of us have our own spheres of influence. And I think that's what this book is trying to say is we can each make a difference if we continue to understand, like lead with empathy, right? Not and understand ourselves because you do on your show too. We unpack a lot of these legacies of our race and our identity. And if we see how we have been shaped, we're then able to better understand how other people may have been shaped and how they may be, you know, we may be looking at them through the same stereotypes that we ourselves have had to experience. And so again, leading with empathy and self-reflection and then understanding the history, which I think is not evenly taught at all throughout our country. So we all stand to learn our collective history in this country. And then in terms of what we can do differently, all of those things are the same, including, you know, once we look at ourselves and our communities, what are the different things that we can each do? Like, you know, I noticed we both have our pronouns on our Zoom or, you know, on our on our video feeds. And, and can we add those to our email footers? We can all do things that help make the world a more understanding, inclusive, loving space. Um, and that is not just for white women to do. That is for every single one of us to attempt to do. What makes you hopeful? Hopeful. I mean, I have to admit there are times where I'm like, oh my goodness, we are doomed. But I think I look at the kids. I see what in the years that I have raised my children from the time the younger one sat next to me and she was like two or three and said, can I have the skin color crayon? And I'm like, I'm sorry, what is the skin color crayon that you speak of? Because that was before Crayola had all these things. And to now where she caught herself. So what, like six years later, she caught herself saying, I'm watching this show and they have, and they're having, uh, there's a black girl and uh, there's a black girl, but she's pretty. And then she said, mom, I said something racist. I should have said, she's a black girl and she's pretty, but the butt made it sound like, even though she's black, like my kid deconstructed her own racism in that moment. And if you hear stuff like that coming out of the mouth of children, you realize there's hope. We can all learn, we can all change, and we can all do things better once we learn. Yeah, it's it's hard, I think, particularly as there just seems to be an endless barrage of news from all corners of the world equally makes the work that you do important and motivating, but at the same time, tough. You know, it's tough, but we just interviewed someone on QAnon, for example. And I think I made the mistake of totally judging and demonizing and characterizing them, right? Like, I was like, oh, those people, like, they're going to be the doom of us as a country. And then I realized, going back to what I said earlier about relationships being the best predictor of our long-term health and happiness, if we are ostracizing people in our communities because they have different beliefs, because they are being pulled into conspiracy theories... You know, if there are people on the fringe of it, in order to build a better society, we really want to reach out to them. We would be doing ourselves and our future a disservice if we ostracize them. And so I think that's where my perspective has continued to be flipped of like, oh, I need to check my judgment. Oh, I need to actually make sure that I am caring about others all the time. This has been a great conversation. I know we could probably talk for hours on this. I, I would encourage people who are intrigued by this conversation who are curious to learn more to do three things one listen to the other half not half the other 
uh, interview <laughs> with with Sarah's co-host Mishasha, um, which will come out uh, either on the same day or right around the same time. Go check out some episodes of Dear White Woman. I think it would be really fascinating to see, uh, maybe listen to one that's a little bit earlier and listen to something that's a little bit more recent. And even if you don't identify as anybody who is featured, um, again, just in the way that we're talking about, it is really important and necessary to see the world through the lens of somebody else with an open mind so that, you know, we are challenged in the way that we think. And as we always do, support Asian American authors. Go buy the book. I'm sure if you were just to walk by a, a book at a bookstore and you see the title and it says, Dear White Woman, you're like, wait a minute, why is that for me? But um, it is written by two Japanese American women. Moms, you know, people who have seen the world and who de care deeply about uh, shaping the future of the world. So uh, go pick up the book Can learn all about the work that they do and more about them at DearWhiteWoman.com. And, and let's end with this. Uh, we, we end the show the same way. Dear Asian Americans letter of inspiration, of perspective, of anything you want to share with our audience from all the things that you've learned and have experienced. And so, Sarah, help us close out the show and complete the letter Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans, take a deep breath in and remember we're all in it together. We are. It's easy to think of the world as divisive. You know, we're, we're recording this middle of September. I think we as a country just reflected a lot over the weekend on the 20th remembrance of 9-11. And there's been a lot of sort of overtly nationalistic things as we always see on how united we were. And, and yet we forget to always think about some of our Muslim brothers and sisters are sick and other Southeast and Middle Eastern folks who were not included in that unity or that sort of remembrance of what it meant to be American. And, and I share that because I think when we say we're all in this together, like we have to mean it and that we are not fighting a people, that I don't hate groups of people. I hate systems that allow certain people to have advantages that all human beings should have. I hate the idea of privilege or supremacy because it, it is not for me to be the supreme group. It is not for me to have all the marbles and for somebody to have none. You know, the work that I think you do and that we do collectively is to make sure that everybody, especially our kids, um, and then the definition of what Asian American means is going to change many times, even in a single generation as we evolve, that they don't have to have these tough conversations. Maybe we still want them to, but it is in the context of that's how things used to be. And here we are having evolved, not just as an Asian American community, but as a country and as a world. Because like I said, I, I love what I do, but there's many times where I wish we didn't have to talk about any of this because it is exhausting and it at times doesn't seem to be getting any better. So uh, wishing you and then Mishasha all the luck in the launch of your book. It's exciting. Your first book, I will say, as I know there are more coming to the work that you do both professionally and in, in your personal lives to make sure that these difficult conversations are being had so that one day they may no longer be difficult. So Sarah, thank you so much for all that you do. Thanks for being a good friend in supporting my work and in having fun conversations about the work. Wishing you all the best and see you soon. All right. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, thank you, Sarah, for making time for this conversation. And the work that you do, the work that you and Mishasha do, 
uh, to talk about the things in communities that we are privileged to be in and to have an audience and to have a platform in places where we can bring these conversations. And so if you resonated with what uh, Sarah and I talked about, I encourage you to share this episode out to your friends, to your colleagues, to your family members, to anybody who might be uh, willing to listen. Uh, check out episodes of Dear White Woman. Uh, it is a great platform. It is a, a different platform than ours, obviously, uh, but it does uh, bring to light a lot of the tough conversations, particularly in the last 18 months that we all need to have within our families and within our social circles. So uh, look forward later this week as we release episode 131 with Sarah's uh, friend, co-host, co-author, and partner in crime, uh, Mishasha Suzuki Graham. And looking forward to hearing from you. Hello at theeurasianamericans.com is where you can email us. And on Instagram, you can find us, the show, at theeurasianamericans. Or if you want to contact me personally, you can go to jerrywan.com, check out my website, and email me there. Thanks again for tuning in. And as we always do, wherever you are and whenever you may be listening to this, we wish you all the health, safety, and happiness. This has been your host, Jerry Wan of The Asian Americans, and we'll see you next time.